0: Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. Hello everybody, I'm Ross Overline, and you are joining us today for the Investing in Integrity podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. I'm fortunate to be to be joined today by JC DeSwan. Uh, JC is a lecturer at Princeton University on the topic of ethics and finance, among others. He also teaches at Cambridge University and is a partner at Cornwall Capital, a New York-based investment fund. JC is also on the advisory board of Scholars of Finance and has many other roles. And uh, one thing we'll talk about today is he is the author of Seeking Virtue in Finance, Contributing to Society in a Conflicted Industry, which was just published in September, and we'll talk about today. Um, JC, it's so great to have you on today. Thanks for coming.
1: Great, well, thanks so much for having me, Ross. I I really uh, am looking forward to
0: this. Likewise, likewise. Um, JC, can you maybe just kick us off by sharing a brief background on your life and career, sort of the, the headlines?
1: Sure. Um, so let me um, start by um, saying that, uh, so I, I've, I've always been interested in this concept of finance as a force for good and as a kind of uh, uh, a, a vehicle to promote economic prosperity, right? And so I, I studied economic development and public policy in grad school and um, eventually went to work for McKinsey and management consulting for a few years. But I was always interested in, in testing out this idea that finance could be um, helpful to society. And so I moved to the buy side to become a, an institutional uh, investor, an investment professional. And I was particularly interested in, um, in investing in emerging markets to test out this idea of finance uh, being helpful to uh, economies and particularly emerging economies. And uh, now the reality is, so I started by uh, working in a long short equity fund dedicated Asia, and it literally took me like a week or two to realize that I, I, you know, was having almost no impact if, you know, perhaps none whatsoever in these economies. And it really drove me to think harder about what is it about finance that is helpful. And, um, and so I I ended up uh, uh, delving into it in, uh, in the form of a course. I My true passion is teaching. I taught as a graduate student and I, I created a course um, and then eventually like uh, several courses. But I, I've been for the past 12 years dividing my time between uh, teaching and, and investing. And as you mentioned, on on the teaching side, I, I focus on uh, Uh, ethics and finance. Um, I also focus on emerging markets and specifically Asia, but a lot of these themes uh, overlap.
0: Hmm. That is absolutely fantastic. And I love hearing the the narrative arc about this desire to make an impact in finance from the very beginning and really venturing into finance to do that. Uh, I I think it's interesting that even just two weeks into your role, you realize you needed to rethink that decision. I would, yeah. I would have imagined um, there was some fear, uh, some consternation around that decision you had just made. Um, what was it like to sort of navigate from that into the next finance role where you felt like you were gonna be making an impact and, and and even teaching?
1: Well, I you know I think part of the, I think the desire to delve deeper into these issues and to study them uh, was to understand how like where to pick my spot in a sense. And I think over the years I've uh, found myself migrating to areas of finance that I think are increasing uh, that were increasingly helpful to society. So I've stayed in the investment world, and and I um, you know spend my time now uh, for the last ten years or so with uh, with a a New York-based hedge fund, Cornwall Capital, and it's just a very thoughtful fund. Uh, My the founder there. Is uh, very attached to these issues and always keen to understand them better. And um, and over the years, I've um, you know migrated to uh, venture capital and to uh, friendly, constructive activism, and to private equity and and all sorts of areas that I think I can have greater impact than, um, say long-short equity where we're simply buying and selling shares in public markets and secondary markets from, from other investors.
0: Right. That, I think, segues perfectly into opening up our discussion about your book. I'm really excited to talk about Seeking Virtue in Finance today with you. Um, I've read it, really enjoyed it. I have copious pages of notes. There's There's so much in it. It's a very dense read, a very enjoyable read you offer a four pillar framework for how you think finance professionals can contribute to society positively. And I'd love to dive into each one individually. But first, can you just share the high level message? If you had to, in a minute or two, summarize the message of seeking virtue in finance for our audience. Um, what is that? What is the high level message?
1: Sure. And, and in fact, you know, to, to talk about the message, maybe I'll say a word about what got me to it because i I think that's important and it's you know when i started teaching 12 years ago it it was clear to me that a lot of my students uh, were interested in finance but uh, concerned about being corrupted the minute uh, they walked into their first job on wall street and and that led me to think uh, about this conundrum of of wanting to work in finance but also wanting to contribute to society and so I created a course on ethics and finance. And the first semester I taught it, midway through my first semester, one of my students asked me, why is it that we only talk about uh, unethical behavior? Uh, why do we not talk about constructive behavior, inspiring individuals and try to learn from them? And I thought about it and I thought, of course, why is it that we, we never devote attention uh, to these people and try to learn from them. And so I set out to try to find that literature uh, for the course, I could not find it. And so ended up uh, trying to develop the, the research myself and I made it part of the course. And the idea was to identify remarkable individuals who, who counter the narrative of self-serving behavior and finance. And my goal was really to find individuals that we could relate to so not necessarily like altruistic individuals because that's hard to relate to but but folks who are um, self-interested they ambitious, uh, successful but each in their own ways and and the important thing is these are individuals who manage to balance their self-interest with the collective interest uh, despite the relentless pressure, uh, for them to focus on short-term profit maximization. And, and the goal was really to tease out patterns of virtuous behavior from, from these individuals. And so the, the message of the book is that we can carve out a virtuous path in finance despite uh, the massive constraints and pressure. And, and it's a path that allows you to balance your self-interest with the collective interests.
0: Thank you so much for taking it back to the, the founding story of how the inspiration came to you. And thank God for that student <laughs> who offered that right. that constructive point on the early class. <laughs> I can say uh, the students and scholars of finance have largely shaped our organization. Their, their intuition, their innovative thinking has been instrumental to our growth, and I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Sort of the genesis of virtue and finance on both of our ends is coming from the next generation. Really, they're they're helping shape it and helping drive the thinking. Um, so there are four pillars. What are the four pillars?
1: So the the first one is um, serving your customers' interests with your customers' interest in mind. In a sense, like prioritizing your customers' interests, being faithful to their interests even when no one is looking. And the idea is that in finance, it's often the case that no one is looking because finance, uh, relative to other industries, happens to be complex. Uh, It's often opaque. And there's also often a fair amount of asymmetry of knowledge and, and information between the service provider and their customer. And that's particularly the case if their customers are retail customers. Um, so there, there's no pillar that's more important than the professional mandate. Um, so that's the first one. The second one is uh, serving your customers' interests without extracting value from other stakeholders and from the rest of the world, and ideally uh, by um, creating value for the rest of the world and, and other stakeholders. The The third pillar is about humanistic leadership, and it's really about treating colleagues with dignity, It's about helping develop them, helping empower them, and also uh, fostering a responsible culture. And that includes promoting diversity within your organization. And then finally, the fourth pillar is about um, being a good citizen, but using uh, all the tools that you've developed as a finance professional in order to contribute to society. And so that can mean uh, using the, the skill set that you've developed as a finance professional. It can be uh, using your network. It could also be using your savings and your wealth to the extent that you've created wealth. And, and that can be in parallel to your professional job, your professional mandate, or it could be after once you leave the industry and do something else.
0: Thanks, JC. I think that the, the four pillars, the framework that you've put together here, for carving a virtuous path in finance, right? Balancing intrinsic self-interest with uh, the interests of others and the greater good, if you will, I think makes a lot of sense. And I, I love how robust it is, right? This notion of customer mandate, serving customers' interest faithfully, right? Ensure that you're doing an excellent job at your job. And I'm excited to unpack that while you're serving your, your clients, create wealth, create value for society and make sure you don't extract value, right? Actually adding an additional layer of consideration around the actual financial activity itself. And then outside of the investing decisions day to day, having this third, which is how you treat people. What's the culture you create in the firm? um, What are your day-to-day interactions like within the firm? And then I love that this fourth pillar then turns outwards towards the community. What, how, what are you doing in your day-to-day outside of your financial activity, serving your customers, being virtuous in your financial activity, treating your team well? What are you doing outside of the four walls of work, again, yes. with your expertise, time, and resources? Uh, so it feels like a pretty robust, full framework that someone can really use to vet Every, I would say every dimension of their life, almost, as a finance yeah, professional.
1: Abso- absolutely, yeah. And that, that was a little bit of the idea of having a holistic perspective on being a finance uh, professional uh, as a citizen, as a good citizen.
0: Mm, absolutely. And I love some of the references you make in the book to Aristotle, uh, to a, a few thought leaders of old, right, who helped us think about what a virtuous life looks like. With that, I'd love to dive into the first pillar and sort of take these one at a time for the next 15 or 20 minutes or so. Number one, customer mandate, serving customers' interests faithfully. Um, I would love to hear you unpack that a little bit more. What does that look like in day to day and beyond the obvious? And what do you think are some of the key salient and unique points in your book uh, that you think are important for our listeners to hear today about how they can serve customers faithfully?
1: What might get in the way? Well, I mean, I'll say what can get in the way uh, first is um, every every financial firm in the world will say that they prioritize their customers' interests, right? So, so that's not differentiating. But the reality is that not all of them do. And, and sometimes they don't uh, because they, they try to extract as much value as possible from their customers. Um, and so they, they, in a sense, have a little bit of a shorter-term perspective because this is one where, if you were purely commercially-driven, um, a long-term approach to your commercial interests would converge with this idea of serving or prioritizing your customers' interests because that, that would be essentially the same. Um, but then there, there's this issue of cognitive biases. There are all sorts of um, cognitive biases, and and this is a fertile area of research, uh, and that's been the case for for years now. But it's this idea that um, finance is particularly fertile grounds for for these biases because of the complexity and the opacity of the industry. And and what you find is, this concept of you know bounded awareness, for instance, and it's this idea that you can be so entangled in in your bubble inside of work where you have these uh incredibly like challenging short-term goals on a daily basis right every day you're you're hustling to try to get to your goals and to and and you have folks that are above you that are keep asking you know that keep asking you for these deliverables and it, it's hard to stop and take stock of what you're actually doing, right? To the extent that you're delivering on things that the folks above you are asking you to deliver on, and to the extent that you're emulating the behavior of the people that you see around that are successful at your firm, why would you question it, right? And in reality, what we find is that you can have very smart people who are good people who end up making bad decisions in the workplace, because they're not able to step out of that role and think of the moral dimension of uh, of their everyday decisions of their everyday activities and and that you know frankly it's not it's not easy Um, and it's not easy in part because there's an environment that's going to push you in one direction and also the you know the reality is that finance is really underpinned by uh, finance theory and and if you you know if you go back to finance theory the the neoclassical framework is really about uh, to the extent that you're, you pursue your interest your self interest then it will be good for your firm it will be good for the client it will be good for society right that's the underlying assumption but we know that not to be the case uh, that's often not the case and so this this concept of bounded awareness is is very I think uh, uh, very salient for finance. There's also these, um, you know, these, these concepts of uh, motivated blindness, right? When you see, if if for instance you're a senior person at your firm, but you see junior folks uh, skating too close to the edge, uh, but but getting their, uh, you know, getting to their objectives, delivering on what they need to do, perhaps bringing in revenues then you might uh, you might just turn your attention away and not question things that an outsider in the same position with the same perhaps educational background the same outlook on life might look at this and say wow that's that's unethical you shouldn't do that right and that's where uh you see examples like you know the wells fargo case for instance is is a good example that um you know, the reality is um, a lot of these folks who are, you know, I'm sure like well-meaning people and, uh, but they got into these uh, modes of thinking where they, they weren't able to get out and to, to step away from their role and to take stock of uh, the, 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 you know, what they were doing on a daily basis. Uh, so, so I, I think in a sense, serving your customers with your customer's interest in mind is both there, there's both an aspect uh, to it which is about uh, making sure that it's an explicit priority. but even if it's an explicit priority, um, the challenge is to uh, uh, be able to check yourself and and test that you're actually doing what you think you're doing. and that's not always the case in finance.
0: Right what I one other what I think about and and one other, I think idea that that stemmed from reading your, your, the, the chapter on, on this first pillar on serving customers' interests is this notion of ethical fading, right? I think what, what we hear, and you even talked about with your own students, is they fear being corrupted once they enter Wall Street, right? That presupposes that they aren't corrupted already. Ideally, their desire to serve the interests of others may, could be a proxy to suggest that their desire to serve others outweighs their own self-interest or desire to serve themselves at the onset, but then somehow along the way, due to all of these, these different uh, dynamics that you've described, uh, profit pressure, right? Uh, so a whole number of things, um, I'm curious, what do you think are some of the safeguards that you've put in place or that you think other, other leaders in finance have put in place, you know, in your year, year one, year two, you know, every day in their finance career to sort of prevent that ethical slippage, that ethical fading? Mm -hmm. Um, to avoid that sort of slow creep of our self-interest slowly overtaking our desire to serve the interests of our customers and of other people?
1: Yeah, no, that's a good question. And uh, this is an area that's uh, massively underdeveloped in the industry. I think it's better developed in other industries, right? Um, If you think of, for instance, in, in the medical profession, I think they do a better job of uh of that for instance in in the financial industry uh you know frankly the the way in which we test whether we're serving our customers is basically seeing whether they stick with us or not whether they continue uh generating revenues i mean that that's the main way in which uh the the industry operates but i think on a day-to-day basis uh particularly if you're junior what can you do um, one is uh, first, uh, uh, force yourself to continue uh, creating transparency. And I think that is, um, that, that is really important. Um, this notion of uh, transparency because and, it, and frankly, it's easier, I think, when you're a junior than when you're senior. because when you're a junior, you have free reign to ask what might come across as naive questions. Uh, that will force um, uh, folks that are above you to answer questions about, you know, uh, wh- how are you serving the customer's interest, or like what, you know, like what are we doing here exactly, and and why are we charging these fees, and do are the customers aware of these fees, and you know, all the, all the kind of questions that become harder and harder to, I think, ask if you're a third year, uh, you know, if you're an associate, a VP or even an MD. So asking pesky questions and creating transparency is is, uh, is a very significant tool. There's a, another tool that I, I think is very useful, which is to write, write things down. And as, you, as a junior person, it, it's perhaps a little bit harder to say, I'm gonna write things down and then share them um, with the group. But if you have any level of seniority you could simply uh, create these, like uh, certain processes internally, where you say, "Well, let's write down um, how are we serving the customer's interests here? Are there any trade-offs for the customer? Like, what what are the you know if the customer went through all this data and went through the this action step by step and had full transparency?" which is often not the case, right? But if they had full transparency, what might they say? What might they uh, think is uh, to their benefit? And what might they question? If you actually go through a systematic process where, you know, and you don't want to create too much bureaucracy, of course, so you don't want to be in a situation where you get yourself to like do a ton of these every day, but every so often to write things down, I think forces you to be honest. And, and that's and so I think this um, it, it can migrate towards the concept of checklist. And I haven't seen it in the industry, but that's a, that's a concept that I think would be interesting to explore. This is one that they've introduced in the medical field to tremendous success. And so you know, I, I think that's one we should explore.
0: Thanks, thanks. I love the entire list you share. A couple of thoughts that come to mind for me as well in that or what it reminds me of during my time at SoFi when I was on the leadership team launching SoFi Money, their, their retail banking product, right? Their debit card, their ability to accept savings, deposits, um, preparing for their now bank charter they filed. One thing, Anthony Noto, our CEO, right, who had a long tenured career at Goldman Sachs, at the NFL, at Twitter, um, Anthony Noto would actually bring up Customer stories. She would actually share customer testimonials. Joanne Bradford, who was the, our chief marketing officer at the time, um, she would regularly share at every marketing team weekly meeting, they would share a testimonial from an actual member. And it sort of it takes what can feel very abstract. You know, you're looking mm-hmm. at spreadsheets, you're looking at numbers, and suddenly it takes what is very abstract and it makes it very real and tangible. Uh, and reconnecting, I think, even junior talent, senior leaders, right, with the end customer and the actual lived experience of the end customer, I found really powerful for me. It, it yeah. Not only, I think, taps into the em- empathy and I would like to think the moral regions of our, our minds and souls, ideally, um, but I think it also is highly motivating, too, right? Not only, I think, keeps people on the right path, but it drives performance. I found that really, really useful. Yeah. What's interesting, and it it sort of, I think, segues into the second pillar, right? The second pillar of creating social wealth, right? The the Mm -hmm. title is Social Wealth Creation, Contributing to Society Beyond the Customer Mandate. And what's interesting, you'd even brought this up, you know, you're ultimately measuring whether or not you're serving your client's interests by whether or not you retain those customers, right? Is there retention and then is there revenue growth with those customers? Um, But those those interests of those customers, while we in finance are tasked with serving their financial needs. Ultimately, their financial needs, their, their finances, are, are just for most customers, right? Most people who aren't ultra wealthy, who aren't in the top you know, 0.1% of society, um, fin- meeting their financial needs means housing, food, water, shelter, education, right? Safety and security and healthcare for their children. Um, it actually is it's fulfilling their broader interests and really just enabling, I would argue, human flourishing which you talk about in the book as well. And the second pillar are, is what you're doing actually contributing to society, I think is in, in inherently a way that we're actually still serving customers' interests, right? Um, while it might not be their financial interests that they're looking to you to serve now, um, you're still serving their, their broader interests. Sort of this notion of a rising tide raises all ships comes to mind right? in, a, in a collective interdependent society. And so I'd love to shift into the into the second pillar with this. Um, Would love to hear more about your thoughts um, for our listeners on the line. How can finance professionals most significantly contribute to society based on your research and, and the framework?
1: Yeah. So um, the you know as you said, I mean, like the 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 challenge here is. Um, there there are parts of uh, finance where you end up serving your customers well but you do so by extracting value and so the the first step is to make sure that doesn't happen right Be- before you even go to uh, uh trying to focus on creating value you want to make sure that that you're not extracting value from others that that's the first step and you know there there are all sorts of examples of that but the the you know the the proverbial example is the you know the the, the investment firm that invests in a company that pollutes, and and that uh, firm is uh, its pollution the uh, in some ways allows it to generate higher returns than it should because in certainly in the United States the cost of pollution is borne by society, and uh, their um, getting away with uh, you know perhaps um, uh, subpar machinery that is cheaper and uh, their returns are higher, uh, but we pay for it. And, and that's a challenge and that's something that, that we need to deal with as, as an industry. and there's been a huge move in that respect, right? So focusing on the investment world, ESG is a great example of um, in a uh, a trend, that is uh, seeking to do that. And and it's a fascinating one in my mind, right? Because here you have um, a, um, a trend uh, that uh, initially was a moral movement that eventually morphed into uh, one that was consistent with generating higher returns where you're both contributing to society and generating higher returns by embedding environmental, social and governance factors in, in your investment process. And um, now, what are, if, if you know, for the sake of, of this example, if we were to focus on uh, what are the areas where you can create the most mm-hmm. social value? Well, how would you approach it? I would first say, um, you would look at the investment first in terms of its financial returns, right? Because an investment that doesn't generate attractive financial returns is just an investment that's not sustainable. Unless it's funded by philanthropic sources, which more often than not is not, right? Like the, the bulk of the capital uh, in the world is, um, is uh, capital that looks for a uh, fiduciary mandate. And in this case, uh, that means it's really critical for any investment to generate attractive returns as a, a, uh, you know, kind of a litmus test. Assuming that's the case, then what are the areas where you can create most social value? Well, I would say the second one, which is also a low-hanging fruit uh, to some extent is you need to invest in something that will support the real economy, right? Because, um, so if I invest in, I don't know, I'm I'm a venture, you know, like at, at our fund, we we've invested in low cost gyms. That supports the real economy, right? You're you're creating jobs, there's a real product, uh, there's a service uh, and there's demand for that service and that's what allows it it to do well over time. On the other hand, um, at the extreme, I'll also mention some things that we do that in my mind are not particularly helpful to society, which is exotic options. Like you can have complicated derivatives whose sole reason to exist is to generate financial returns, but they don't really support, they don't have any reason to exist outside of that because we come up with them uh, out of our you know, models and then we'll go to our counterparties and say, can you create an option that will uh, monetize if you know this condition is met and then this condition is met and then this condition is met. They often look like macro trades, and um, you know those are are not really supportive of the real economy. Are are they negative to the rest of the world? It's hard to say. At the margin, they probably create some risk that, uh, in aggregate, uh, governments and central banks don't have a a, a full grasp of. So that's probably not great, Um, but. So, you know, to the extent that you're going to look for the investments that are most helpful to society, you're going to look for investments that support real economic activities. And then finally, um, and this is where I've migrated over the years, is this notion of, well, is does your investment actually help improve the business, the underlying business, or perhaps the underlying asset, right? And, and that's where I think there are investment strategies that can be helpful. And, and I think of them as the activist strategies, not activists as in uh, the, the traditional um, concept of shareholder activism, but activists in the sense that you actually engage uh, with your investment. And in this case, it's more often than not, it's a, it's a business and you try to improve the business. And so in that category, I would put uh, certainly venture capital, which not only you know, tends to or can improve the underlying uh, business, but can be transformative for the un- underlying business. And so that is probably the, you know, the one that uh, generates the most consensus uh, in terms of, uh, you know, looking at it as as a force for good in society. But I, I think that's true of private equity to some extent. So in the book, I go through the metrics so there are specific metrics, both in terms of, of course the financial returns, but then also around uh, its its contribution to the economy and society. And you can uh, there there is research out there that will show the impact of these strategies on employment and on productivity and on innovation. Um, and this is an emerging area of research, but there is empirical analysis and private equity in theory should clearly help in practice it seems like it does but the 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 research is not as conclusive as as you might imagine but it still points i think in a positive direction and and of course in theory it should because private equity um, you generally end up owning control of Mm -hmm. the firm. And then there are all sorts of ways in which private equity funds deploy themselves with these firms sitting on the board, bring to Mm -hmm. bear their entire network, uh, bring best practices in terms of KPIs and so on Mm -hmm. and and financial controls. Um, so, So that's a force for good. And then finally shareholder activism. And that's when you take, Um, uh, significant stakes in listed companies and then you eventually work with management to try to improve the company in one way or the other. And that's been an important part of uh, my uh, investment experience in recent years. I've been uh, very involved in, in doing that in Japan as a friendly constructive activists working with Japanese companies to try to help them, make them more consistent with the new corporate governance code that came out in uh, in 2015. Mm-hmm.
0: Being extra friendly, I'm sure, operating in Japan. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It's a, you have to be very, very patient and long-term in your outlook there, which is great. I mean, it, it, it actually fits. It's very consistent with our approach.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I appreciate that. I remember reading this thinking, yeah, that makes complete sense. Venture capital, private equity, activist investing being three of the ways that actual investment decisions, transactions can drive outsized social impact and societal wealth, as you call it. Um, One other point that you brought up in this chapter that I I really appreciated in this pillar was uh, sort of the first litmus test you brought up is, is this actually promoting real economy activities that are truly sustainable? And the second question, and I've heard this actually from Richard Davis, someone you write about in the book and another one of our advisors uh, said in a different way, but you said, would you sell this product to your children? Yeah. If of course, you know, your children were in the same socioeconomic circumstances as your customers, right? I remember I heard the story about Richard Davis famously, he would have these quarterly business reviews with all the business line heads. Um, And one day as they all came in, he sort of surprised them with this question and said, I want you all to tell me right now, are there any products in this business line that you would not enthusiastically sell to your mother-in-law?
1: Oh, that's interesting. I I didn't know that example.
0: And if there are, we should discontinue these products. Right. <laughs> Essentially. And, and I'm, of course, reducing the story and, and paraphrasing and you know, it's word of mouth. So I'm sure if Richard Davis hears this and was listening, he'd say, No, that's not how it happened, Ross Ross, don't tell that story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I appreciate this. Like, would you, would you bring this, would you give this product to yeah. someone you care about? And one exactly. question, as I was reading the chapter that stood out to me, maybe a third consideration that someone can ask is, you know, is this actual transaction, is this particular business? that your capital is supporting, is that meaningfully improving the quality of life of its customers, right? And this is, again, what you, what you talked about a bit, um, you know, are you, is this a tobacco company that's just creating cancer and addiction, no. right? Or is this a health food business? Yeah. Um, and this is, of course, particularly salient for venture capital, for private equity, even for activist investors who can help large businesses shift their their product lines and really shift their focus. Right? You've seen a lot of large retailers, Clorox, move into Naturals, as an example, like with Burt's Bees and other brands. Um, so you know, is this business that you're supporting, you're injecting capital into or optimizing, is the growth of this business or industry actually beneficial for customers? And that, I think, brings financial professionals into a realm of uh, much, a much higher standard of knowledge, of understanding of, of hu- human condition, of psychology, of health, and sort of all the factors that contribute to individual and collective flourishing. Um, and it's one that I'm, I'm really excited to, to dig into in the years ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I would say um, it's uh, it's a very important one. I think it, it uh, totally fits into that notion of social wealth creation. It's uh, It can be a challenging one. Uh, and that's where, you know, you, like there, there needs to be more work done on it because, there are, for instance, all sorts of businesses that on the surface respond to a customer need, but uh, that may not be good for the customer ultimately, right? And so there, there's sometimes the challenge of trying to figure out, well, is it good? Because they really want it and they're very excited about it, but we know it tends to uh, maybe nurture bad habits, right? So like a good example uh, that uh, can be, you know, uh, a, a, an endless source of debate is Robinhood in the uh, financial industry. And uh, Robinhood is this platform that allows you to essentially, for so it's really targeted at retail investors and it allows you to trade for free, right? And so on the surface, I think, and certainly the way they're positioned, the model is democrat, democratizing finance by making super cheap to trade on the other hand you could look at this and say well it really promotes exactly the sort of behavior that you wouldn't want your daughters your mother-in-law or whoever that you care about actually pursuing right and, and engaging in you don't want to be trading all the time because that's exactly the sort of thing that that you know destroys value and that brings your and erodes your savings over time in a, in a hurry. Um, so, right. so those are challenging topics, right? Because you can see the the first degree effect, the second degree effect, and and the time horizon is also like important.
0: Right. Ray Dalio would be proud if he heard this. You know, think consider the second and third order effects of our decisions. Right. Yeah. Um, and it, it can be infinitely complex. So I think maybe the next book can be you know the the list of yeah. one hundred rules or criteria, um, so you can make it easier for us. You can give us the handbook. Uh, yeah. at least a step in that direction. <laughs> yeah, that, that
1: could be the good follow-up book, yeah.
0: <laughs> Your third pillar, uh, if, I, if I may shift into the third pillar yeah. of this framework, humanistic leadership, treating colleagues with dignity, empowering them and fostering a responsible culture. You share a number of, I think, really compelling stories in, in the book about leaders who you think exhibited humanistic leadership. Um, you, you mentioned Whitehead, Right from Goldman Sachs, a number of leaders who I think uh, made a really significant impact to their firms. What are a couple of the kind of key highlights that you would want to bring to the attention of people listening? And what are some of the the key advice that you would offer our listeners about how they can be great leaders, great teammates, and achieve some of these goals? What are the most important points? Yeah.
1: I mean, in some ways, that's probably the simplest of all the pillars because it's it's ultimately about uh, being a, a good person in the workplace and being supportive of others and being collaborative and and not being uh, competitive with your colleagues. So there, there's something very simple and straightforward about it. And and you know how can young leaders uh, do that? I mean, I, I think there are different ways, um, you, you know, I mean, at a, you know, at a simple level, you can be collaborative and be helpful to others rather than competitive. But you, ultimately, the goal here can be to, I mean, it's, you know, it sounds like um, a little vague, but you, the goal might be to create internal goodwill and followership, right? Because to the extent that you have people go to you as the go-to person, on specific topics because they know you're going to be helpful and they know that uh, you're not going to uh, try to pull shenanigans and you're, you're just going to be very straightforward with them, then it's, it's just going to um, allow you to develop internal leadership. Um, there's this concept at McKinsey, uh, which is um, how much followership do you have? How many people actually go to you for advice? And that's actually incredibly valued internally. Right. When when when, um so I I left the firm you know a long time ago, but at least at that point, that was part of the review to understand whether other people naturally go to you as a mentor, as as someone that you know, even for small questions, practical questions, or bigger questions, they go to. Um, so so that 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 I think is an important one. Um and you know, it's not uh, necessarily as easy in certain environments, because there are environments that are star cultures. You know, there are cultures that promote um, stars. And that means that there's an incentive for people to uh, draw attention to themselves and compete against others. And 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 that's what, you know, the firm is organized to do. And, and I recognize that that could be more challenging in that environment. But ultimately, it's about a carving a path that is aligned with your own values. Um, the if you're if you're a senior person in the organization, particularly if you're if you're the leader of the organization, the the way you can create that culture is uh, well, certainly by you know showing the way yourself. But ultimately, it's about creating the incentives, right? Like ultimately, it's. Uh, pay well those who support the team rather than those who call attention to themselves. Like the way you you compensate people is the ultimate signal often in finance as to mm-hmm. what is valued by management. And so if you very clearly show that you're compensating those who are acting virtuously in the, in that respect, then that will lead others to try to emulate them. Um, Other ways that you can uh, engage in this is diversity. Um, There are all sorts of ways to promote diversity internally. One way, you know, what's interesting of course is that diversity has become an enormous priority for the industry. And, um, you know, it's been a priority for some time, but certainly I think the, the killing of George Floyd this year and the upsurge in indignation in the country, you know, rightfully so, I think has led the industry to think harder about diversity than it had before. And so there are all sorts of internal processes uh, at large investment banks, for instance, and the large commercial banks and hedge funds where they're prioritizing that now. More than it did in the past, it is relatively easy, uh, regardless of your profile internally to get involved in these efforts.
0: Absolutely. And as, as you're well aware, um, diversity is something that we focus on pretty heavily in scholars of finance.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, gender, ethnic, cultural diversity, of lived, diversity of lived experience, um, cognitive diversity, right? We're very much believers in the, the, the idea that any one of us, given our life experience, our background, right, our sort of role in society and all of its contours and shapes and, and forms, have a different perspective on any given situation. And then the objective set of circumstances, all of our subjective experience is unique and different. And coming together uh, with those variety of of subjective lenses actually yields us the largest data set, right? Like the the largest swath of perspective at any given point. What's interesting about the the humanistic leadership pillar to me, and you you say it's the simplest, right? It's, It's the most straightforward. And I would agree. I do think that, especially when you look at how much literature there is on, on leadership, on how to treat others, I mean, we have religious texts dating back thousands of years oh. telling us you know, to, to be compassionate, to be honest, all these things. A lot of what we do here at Scholars of Finance and focus on right, is just teaching these core values that ultimately, I think, move towards pillar three and support pillar three. That said, I think of, of all the pillars, this one, uh, while it's the simplest, it can actually be one of the most difficult to do. Um, because for a variety of reasons, you know, when you think about individuals who maybe are attracted to a star culture, right, those dimensions of their personality are neurologically wired in maybe for years or decades, those might be central to their personality or identity. Um, those, you know, that's all it's in our limbic system, the limbic region of our brain, not our neocortex, right? So it it takes a lot of work and energy to, sort of you know, sublimate our awareness into the limbic system and rewire the limbic system itself. It takes so much energy. And so I think I've even found for myself personally, You know when I look at my own core values and how I define humanistic leadership, I fall so far short of being the role model I wish I were every day. If I look back over the last five years of my life, there's been dramatic improvement over time and sort of how consistently you can uphold these things. But, um, I view it. I, the, the 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 example I use often. F. Martin brought this up. F. Martin was the founder. is a he was a partner at Goldman Sachs, and he was the founder of their their high tech group TMT division of Goldman Sachs. You know, helped with the IPOs of Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. Sort of a legend out here in Silicon Valley finance. He came and spoke to our students once and said, "I love that you're building character now, because you need to be building it for the next 15 years. So when you actually need it, you have it, right?" And sort of use this muscle model, this sports model, or instrument model of, you know, integrity, yeah. collaboration, selflessness, um, honesty, or all these sort of virtuous behaviors that create humanistic leadership. Uh, we need to be practicing them, practicing them, practicing them, yeah. so that you know, 15 years from now, we're going back to the first pillar. Um, when the stakes are really high, you do the right thing. Not only for your customers, but when the stakes are really high, and hey, you know three people came up with an idea together and every part of it, and this could be a promotion and every part of you wants to take credit for the idea, but you know that your two teammates helped. And one of them even had the initial seed of the idea and you have the humility and integrity to say, actually, yes, I want to, I want to champion Sarah. You know, Sarah had this idea. Love it. Um, Thank you, Sarah, for this. Um, It can be so hard to develop.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And you know, I'll mention one additional thing too. I mean, to your point, I mean, I think you're you're suggesting that sometimes it's hardwired and that's hard. You know, I mentioned sometimes the challenge is actually you're in an environment where it's not particularly valued, and in fact, there's a certain personality type that is uh, hired and promoted, and you know, and that makes it hard. But one way to look at this whole framework. Uh, in the book is it, it allows you to pick your spots in the industry. So it allows you to pick where you want to be in the industry, but also within a certain corner of the industry, which firms you want to be. And that can be a way to screen for firms, right? Because if, if this is, um, if you want to follow the framework and, and make it easy for, for you to do so, it's easier to find a firm where this is valued and where they tend to recruit people that are gonna show these characteristics and this profile than to go to a firm where it's actually the opposite.
0: Absolutely, uh, I appreciate you raising the point. I think it's an incredibly important one that as you sort of become self-aware right, of your leadership characteristics, of your aspirations, right, of, of how you can build a culture that you wanna build, you actually have optionality to go and find the place that supports that. Yeah. Um, and you'd like to think that, you know, if there's a, more and more research emerging that a lot of the, you know, these collaborative, um, collective, interested, you know, focused behaviors are actually contributing to long term value creation and, and, and competitive advantage. Um, ideally, firms that are creating these cultures that support these, these healthy behaviors um, actually will win out in the long term uh, over time. I think that actually shifts um, pretty well, or maybe hard pivot into the fourth pillar. Um, engaged citizenship, right? So ideally, you know, these firms that have these healthy cultures with humanistic leadership uh, proliferate financial professionals with lots of resources and energy and, and time. Um, and you talk about yeah, expertise, time and wealth, contributing these to the common good. Uh, I'm curious, what do you think are some of the most practical ways that young finance professionals, even students can do this early on in one's career?
1: I, I think there are a tons of ways for them to to use that, uh, because it, I mean that, that's in some ways that's a great benefit of being in finance because the the skill set that you develop in finance is extremely versatile and can be used in all sorts of other parts of society. Right, so you could be a first year, second year analyst in investment banking, and you will uh, model uh, all day long. You know, seven days a week. What you? Um, but assuming that you have time, right, to get involved in something else on the side, um, you could easily pick a not-for-profit, perhaps a, a startup not-for-profit that is exciting to you, and offer to do their accounting and their models, right? They they have to set up simple models to for their budget and for their projections, and so they for you. Often it's going to be very easy to set that up in a way that's robust and and disciplined and highly structured, and so you can create systems for a tiny startup, a tiny not-for-profit, in a way that creates an enormous amount of value for that not-for-profit. So you can start doing it essentially as you know very soon after you you start investment banking. So so that's certainly. You know one example, but it's one that allows you to uh, work across, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of, of um, uh, startups in the in your in your area. Um, so so that's one. You know, and uh, as you as you become more senior, um, you have the ability to become more of an advisor on financial matters because now you've gained experience, you have more insights. You can uh, think about uh, budgeting uh, probably in in, in more uh, thoughtful ways. You can probably think about raising capital in more thoughtful ways. And then you can do, you know, and then at an at a even higher level, you can do what Erin Goddard did, uh, which, you know, one of the examples in the book, this woman was 28 when I met her. That was, I think, three years ago. She had been uh, an accountant at Ernst & Young in Toronto for five years. And, and she, um, and to Ernst & Young's credit, they have a program that allows you to take a summer off to work in a not-for-profit. And so she she did that in Kigali in Rwanda. And she came back with this great insight that um, in developing an economy like Rwanda is uh massively massively impaired by the fact that they just like an enormous dearth of accounting skills and uh, and as a result a lot of their companies a lot of their not-for-profits are are kind of uh run loosey-goosey because the numbers are, are not particularly uh believable or their uh, their their finance are not run in a structured way disciplined way and so on so she decided to take it upon herself to move back there. She brought with her a partner from a, a colleague, from Ernst & Young, and they started a, um, an accounting academy there. And now that accounting academy has, you know, their are training cohorts of over, hundreds, over 100 uh, students. So these are folks that would have graduated from their college. And after 13 weeks of training, they're job ready. They can go into companies and, and be accountants. So they're, they're not going to be CPAs, but they're going to be fully functioning accountants. And that just creates an enormous amount of value in Rwanda. Now she's expanding it outside of Rwanda. But that, that's an example of, you know, you wouldn't have guessed necessarily that a finance professional with only, you know, several years of experience could have such outsized impact simply using her skill set. As a, as a finance, that she learned as a finance professional.
0: That's fabulous. And I found that story really inspiring hearing it. Um, maybe, maybe it's my own proclivity because I, I actually finally did it, but I love the story of like your, your own, the person who jumps into industry realizes that there's a bigger impact to make in a different way to pick their spot and they just take the leap. Um, and to some extent, I think that you know, a young finance professional, even a you know, a manager in, fin- in a financial services firm, a portfolio manager, a senior executive, um, when there can be so much pressure for your career to be totalizing, right? To take up 80 hours of your week, 90 hours of your week. I hear people mm-hmm. struggle to maintain you know, marriages, families, friends, etc., right? even their own health sometimes in, in, in the industry. Now, depending on the asset class and how young or how how senior they are. I think that there it can actually be a bit of a leap of faith to take on, right? Some of the citizenship. You know, you hear from young finance professionals who say, "Gosh, I just can't. I can't do anything. I yeah. can barely sleep and breathe." Um, and so, I think it's really important, actually, for their own health, for their longevity, right? For them to preserve their focus on the customer mandate, on creating social wealth, on humanistic leadership, to be an engaged citizen. Right, especially in those early days when your particular role might not feel like it's you know fulfilling your purpose for your life or you're you know making the impact you hope to make. Um, Adam Grant, I know someone who you know helped with the book. Um, a friend of yours wrote in his book *Give and Take* um, about a woman who was working in, in a job that was completely burning her out, and she opened up a branch of Teacher for Ameri- of Teacher America. Sorry, of Minds Matter. It was of Minds Matter in New York. And she was working with these really gifted kids uh, for for a few hours a week. And she found that so rewarding and energizing that that fueled her for the next 70 hours a week at her job, you know, mm. throughout the week. Um, there's actually some emerging research that, you know, citizenship outside of an intense, demanding job can actually fuel performance and fulfillment and energy during mm. it. Um, and one thing I'll note, too, is for scholars of finance, you know, we've seen... People, financial professionals from, you know, students to first year analysts, all the way to, you know, to you, to Richard Davis on our advisory board or Andrew Duff, you know, former CEO chairman of Piper Sandler, John Taft, who you write about in your book, uh, former CEO of RBC's wealth management division, um, giving time, energy, resources, expertise in in different ways, whether Mm -hmm. serving on a board, an associate board, being a mentor, know, once a month for an hour or coming in to speak to a group of students like you have several times for an hour on Zoom, um, advising the team, helping us get it right or just passively donating, whether on a monthly basis or on an annual basis in a significant way. Um, We've seen so much generosity in the industry, right? And I think fortunately it happens to be an industry that compensates well and affords people the potential to be generous. Um, And I'm curious how you've seen sort of some of that citizenship best encouraged, right? How have you seen generosity, some of these, this giving back, how have you seen it be encouraged well? So, you know, leaders listening to this, this discussion, what can they do to get their team, their peers, even their own managers leading up um, to go out and, and be better citizens? How can we inspire that and in, in people around us?
1: Well, I, I think, I mean, if, if you're talking specifically about leaders or firms, I mean, there's a very simple way for them to um, promote that is to organize yourself so that uh, you provide a window of time during work hours where it's actually encouraged for people to take like three hours off and do the mentoring, right, and do the like the the, the work at a not-for-profit. And if that and that's you know interesting because one. Um, you would think, I mean, one, you know, they're giving away three hours of work, but to your point, um, they probably dramatically recoup that because of the increase in productivity as people are happier in their workplace. And they uh, frankly uh, believe more in their firm and their firm's mission when that happens. And, uh, you know, and I remember, for instance, at McKinsey, uh, that's what we did, um, where the firm actually encouraged us to do things, and so I remember when I was there, I used to teach um, at a public school in New York City, and I would go once a week. But the firm made it easy for me to do that because they they organized it, and they uh, and they would pay for the taxi to get there and to come back. And so it was it was understood and it was encouraged. And that makes a, a dramatic difference versus you trying to steal away a few hours here and there without the firm noticing because you're putting in so many hours, right? So I, I would say, I mean, that, that's a fantastic program to uh, create uh, more excitement amongst your, your junior staff.
0: That's great. Thanks, JC. And I actually just taking a note to myself, to actually take my staff out for a day of volunteering, which you haven't done. Um, building this startup nonprofit that is Scholars of Finance is definitely taking a lot of energy. So this is serving as a great reminder for me too. So thank you. You're already making an impact. Uh, we haven't even released the podcast recording yet. <laughs> um, with that, I know we've already reached about an hour of time and I have a, a few more questions. I'd love to just um, give you as quick hits if that's okay. Yeah, um, sure. So you mentioned that in the book, time pressure and stress make it difficult to make ethical decisions. We talk a lot about healthy balance in Scholars of Finance. It's actually one of our 24 principles, to live a healthy and balanced life due to the belief that it actually helps you make the best decisions and do all four of these things that you unpack in your framework. Can you just share in brief um, how you maintain health and balance? I mean, you're, you're busy. So how do you stay healthy? How do you combat time pressure and stress?
1: Yeah, I would say you know there's a, there's a vast difference between – what i can do now that i'm you know like at uh, my age and uh, where i have much more control over my schedule than when i started in the industry right so i would say um it's almost so so today how how do i maintain that balance well i maintain that balance by by doing things that i'm passionate about outside of my investment role and that's Largely teaching and mentoring uh, young folks, right? And it, it gets to be almost fifty percent of uh, what I do on a weekly basis, uh, and it's about fifty percent. So it's it's a, and it's actually a choice that I've made a number of years ago. There are there are big trade offs to this because I'm not. I mean, it's a it's an unusual atypical profile, and for all the time that I'm you know like spending teaching and writing and I'm not spending, you know, looking at investments and and investing. And so there there are real trade-offs to that. Uh, But at the same time, it makes me happy, right? It just makes me more productive. Um, Now, I would say, you know, I guess the one question that is particularly relevant, probably for uh, younger folks listening to this is, what would I do differently if I look back at myself when I started in the finance industry, there is one thing I would do differently. Um, and it, I mean, I, so this this point about um, contributing by being involved. When I I was at at McKinsey, that was enormously helpful to me to be able to you know once a week to go to uh, to this uh, public school and to uh, mentor and teach a little bit. Uh, that that was incredibly helpful. The one thing that I didn't do back then, um, and and I'm mentioning McKinsey, but obviously there are a lot of overlap with the finance industry, even though this is a management consulting firm. Um, mm-hmm. The one thing I didn't do that, I don't know why I didn't do it, but is so important is to engage in physical activity every single day <laughs> in a way that's structured. And it sounds very pedestrian and Uh, You know, maybe even off topic, but I'll I'll tell you, I don't know why it took me so many years to figure that out. But three years ago, uh, I read this very simple sentence. I don't know where, because I'd always run, but I ran like once or twice a week, right? And every time I ran, I felt better for the entire rest of the day. And every time I was, wow, this is so great. I can't, you know, I can't wait to do that this weekend. And then I read somewhere, somewhere, you know, it's funny how one sentence can change your whole outlook. And this woman said, oh yeah, running, I run every day. I think of it as brushing my teeth. And I thought, of course, <laughs> why wouldn't I think about it that way? And I read somewhere else that, you know, it's 20, 20 minutes of running is, is where you get to kind of cardio benefits. And so every single day I run 20 minutes. I run outside. And you know, this year, you know, maybe maybe there are like ten days where I couldn't do it for whatever reason, but just about every single day. And I wish I had learned that when I was, you know, in, in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, it just it would have been made me so much more productive. So so that's my, you know, very low brow, pedestrian like uh, insight.
0: Um, No, I appreciate you sharing. And I mean, I think it's important for people of all ages, listeners of all ages, whether they're a student, they're a first year analyst, or they're a portfolio manager to hear that um, call pedestrian, or I would, I would call it just critical wisdom. Um, I think where I've landed personally is daily exercise, like you mentioned for endorphins, uh, for dopamine, for serotonin, um, to some degree daily meditation, right, uh, to improve decision-making, concentration, uh, stabilize mood, seven and a half hours of sleep, eight hours of sleep, ideally. Um, Jeff Bezos famously was interviewed, and someone asked him, you know, how much, how often do you sleep each night? Like, how much do you sleep? And he sort of looks at the interviewer in a puzzled look and says, eight hours a night. She goes, how can you sleep eight hours a night if you're the CEO Mm -hmm. of Amazon? And he says, no, you've got it backwards. How could I be the CEO of Amazon if I don't sleep for eight mm-hmm. hours a night? <laughs> so good sleep. And you you, tell, you say that to students and they laugh yeah. at you because they're all sleeping four hours a night. Um, uh, those are a few that I would share. Yeah,
1: no, absolutely. I mean, they, this is another takeaway too. And it's funny because I shared that story with uh, my older daughter who's eight. And, and it's interesting because she's at the age where she is so excited about the thought of... Trying to stay up late at night, which for her is you know ten or ten thirty, and and she's already thinking of New Year's Eve, where you know when we allow her to stay up until midnight, and she's like super excited at that thought. And I told her, you know, it was interesting going to college. Um, there are no rules. As soon as you leave your household, there, there's no rules, right? And I got there, and I realized. She, you can stay up as late as you want. And I started meeting friends after, you know, studying in the library at midnight, like or 1 a.m. And we'd get coffee. And I thought it was so cool. And then the goal for four years was really to try to figure out how I can, you know, get, like, start my classes the earliest possible and squeeze, like, as little sleep as possible. And I realized that I was just not being productive because the, over the years I realized, like, going to bed earlier waking up earlier makes you just more productive. And that's another mm-hmm. hack that I, I wish I'd known way back.
0: Right. Uh, I appreciate you sharing. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people listening right now when we release the, the recording will relate to that that collegiate story of trying to squeeze as many hours of daylight or nighttime uh, coffee in as possible. Uh, I'll, I'll try to get to a few more of these last questions I wanted to ask before we wrap up. Um, In the book, you talk about there being core virtues that finance professionals should adhere to, saying the virtues might include honesty, integrity, prudence, loyalty, kindness, and generosity, traits that would serve practitioners well in pursuing thoughtful careers that benefit the common good. Um, While they may be informed by cultural differences, they apply consistently across social communities. Um, Virtue is relevant relevant to different types of bankers, uh, might be no different than those relevant to you know, a banker, a trader, et cetera. Um, they have intrinsic benefit, not only for the professional, um, for their capacity to lead the good life, but also for society right, by bolstering finance's capacity to act as a force for good. Um, you say in particular, the bias towards temperance could help mitigate greed and other behavioral excesses that often lead finance to stray away from the common kind of good. Um, How do you believe aspiring leaders can cultivate those virtues in short? Like, how have you tried to cultivate virtue for yourself in your life?
1: Right. I I think, uh, first of all, I'll say it's hard, right, to say I'm going to be prudent and loyal and kind and generous. Right. I mean, you can you can try to be all these things, um, but it's hard. And so for me, what I think. I, I would suggest, or and I don't want to say what has worked for me because I, I don't want to be presumptuous and say I have all these virtues, but I would say for better or for worse at work, you you tend to emulate people uh, you perceive to be successful, right? And, and those people have outsized influence on you. So the suggestion here would be to look around and try to pick a role model or several role models, uh, but let's say a, a role model who behaves in a way that is consistent with your values and the virtues that you aspire to. So temperance can be an important one, right? And then model their behavior. And ideally, go to that person and ask for advice. And little by little, try to see if they can get to mentor you. I think that's an easier path than saying, I'm going to be this, this, and that. Try to find it in others, in in the you know the context that's relevant for you, and you know more often than not that's the workplace.
0: That's I think fantastic advice, as a personal believer in mentorship. Um, I, I have a number of mentors. Um, I've found that to be I think one of the primary ways that I've tried to grow in line with virtue in this journey that'll it will never end that I'm so so highly flawed in. Um, actually, Tony Paquette comes to mind for me. Um, Tony Paquette was at SoFi when I was there. He's now the CFO of Point You've met him on our advisory board calls. Um, I remember meeting Tony and after seeing him in a few meetings thinking, I, I, you know, I want to be like him when I grow up. Yeah, I want to be like
1: this person. Sure, right.
0: Yeah. Um, clear, confident, but clearly cares about the customer, cares about this team. Culture is very yeah. important, has integrity, has, seems to have integrity, is very honest, very direct. Um, and I found that very beneficial. You yeah. mentioned in and the it, book. Oh, go ahead.
1: Yeah, and I was going to say, it's still relevant in my age, right? Like, at uh, my age, um, I am still looking at people who are 10, 20 years older than me. And and I'm drawn to these people. Uh, and I try to learn from them and emulate them. And and I become kind of their, you know, they become mentors. And and I still meet them today. And, and I make it a priority to, to try to learn from them.
0: the mentorship, it always remains valuable. Absolutely. Um, Thank you so much, JC. Another question I want to ask you, in your book, you point out something interesting that Adair Turner has argued, um, quote, given the evidence that inequality is an inevitable byproduct of free markets, and inequality can have a substantially negative effect on human welfare and happiness, which is not necessarily remedied by growth. There is now a greater question mark regarding the wisdom of long-term economic growth as the overarching policy goal in advanced economies. I'm curious, what are some of the ways that you have seen finance or believe finance is addressing socioeconomic inequity and inequality?
1: Right. I mean, you know, I think finance has has played an important role in exacerbating inequality. Um, and so... You know, I think you ask a, a good question: Is that what are what are ways in which uh, finance can can help address that challenge? And so I, I think there are a few ways uh, it can do that. Ultimately, it has to be either by serving low-income groups or investing in their communities. Um, so you can you can work at a firm that predominantly serves low-income groups. Uh, that won't be your traditional investment banks. Uh, for instance, uh, it's more likely to be community banks or perhaps small company lenders. Uh, you can invest with a focus on low-income groups, and you know I think that's particularly exciting because uh, you know frankly it's it's not um, an area where there's there's not a stampede to invest in these areas, and so you can find a lot of opportunities to invest that are not going to be very crowded. And, and on top of that, you can be sure that uh, you're, you're probably being helpful to the extent that you find investments that are sustainable and that, that generate attractive returns. Um, that will most comfortably sit within impact investment world, but it doesn't have to be impact investments. I mean, we, we certainly, for instance, we, we've uh, uh, helped uh, launch a low-cost uh, gym in Toronto uh, but but are also you know I mean there, there are tons of examples of this and uh, and certainly like Bridges is uh, one of the preeminent impact investment funds and and I think one of their most successful investments ever was to create uh, low cost gyms in the UK that were in low cost uh, low income um, communities um, and so so I think um, that those are like. You know, clear ways in which uh, you can be helpful and address that challenge through through finance.
0: Thanks, JC. And I just want to encourage our listeners to consider that. Right? Consider maybe socioeconomic inequality as a problem they care about, but sort of what is that problem that you care about and want to solve? And how can you pick your spot, as you said, JC, in finance in such a way that you can position yourself to be solving that problem? Um, that said, let's uh, say uh, raising one of my last two questions. Um, in the book, you say that, quote, "Your framework implies a finance professional can lead the good life by serving customers faithfully and being mindful of their responsibility and impact the rest of the world, their stakeholders, local and extended communities and colleagues and employees, but falls short of exhorting all finance professionals to explicitly pursue positive social impact through their professional activity in finance. Uh, At Scholars of Finance, we think that we should exhort young finance professionals to do good in their career in finance explicitly, to really take it that step further and and bring this message to people to say, your career in finance, it should be to make an impact. Uh, We encourage you to. Um, Given the opportunity to right now, to our listeners, how would you encourage finance professionals, young and old, to do so?
1: Yeah, and and I think I don't think there's a difference here in approach. I, I think it's a, it's a question of semantics. Where, um, of course, the goal needs to be to contribute to society, and and my starting point is that finance is a force for good, and it's only to the extent that it's perverted and and corrupted that then it ends up not being a force for good. Um, and and the question I was addressing in that particular sense is to what extent are you going to have a specific social goal that you're pursuing as opposed to embedding you know a general uh, sense of contributing to society and uh, i i'm simply contrasting that to impact investments because impact investment is the one kind of area certainly in the investment world where there's actually like dual explicit goals right like you're you're actually you're 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 supposed to generate attractive returns, but you're also supposed to uh, generate uh, measurable uh, social impact that you track, and that's part of your mandate. And so, all I'm saying is that you can't automatically apply the impact investment framework to all of finance because your your technical mandate is going to be to serve your customers. Now, this being said. I think it, it is the case, you know, and, and that's part of the framework that you need to uh, not only serve your customer, but do so in a way that's helpful to society. And, um, and, you know, the way you do that is to make sure you don't extract value from others and ideally you contribute to the rest of the world. And ESG is a good example, right? Because ESG, it doesn't, ESG allows you to embed all these factors where you contribute to society without making an explicit goal their their explicit mandate is still to generate attractive returns they don't have a dual explicit mandate all these firms that are pursuing esg strategy but all they're saying is that we're going to pursue we're going to pursue these uh, attractive financial returns while we're contributing to society and not extracting value from it
0: thank, thank you so much for for clarifying the semantics there um, I'll say to me, that's, uh, my, my shoulders relax a little hearing that, um, after reading the book, um, and hearing that there, there really is this strong call. And I hope all of our listeners and the people who ultimately read the book hear that They're, the book is making a strong and direct call to contribute to society through your career in finance and financial services. Um, and I appreciate you clarifying just the contrast of impact investments, um, in the, the financial activity itself. Thanks. Thanks, JC. I appreciate you enlightening me. Um, I was going to ask last question. If you were to share one final piece of advice for our listeners who want their career in finance to contribute to the greater good that you haven't shared yet today, or that you think is the one piece of advice you hope that they hear or walk away with, what would it be?
1: I would say to uh, create your own path, right? So, and and the way you create your own path, and and this is really the, the book's approach is to find people who share your values and understand their path and try to emulate them. I think there's uh, the underlying message of the book is that role models matter. And to the extent that you can find role models and and try to follow them and and emulate them, uh, you will be able to do what you set out to do. Finance is a vast field on the whole. Uh, and it's just, it is a force for good. So it affords a lot of opportunities for young professionals to contribute to society. Just, you know, be, try to find your own path that is consistent with your values.
0: Amazing. Thanks, JC. I, I really appreciate it. And my sincere hope, and I'm confident that your book will help some people find their path in finance, uh, that, is, that does align with their values. Um, I know we're coming up on time. So, JC, I want to just thank you for joining us today.
1: No, thank you for having me. This was a fun conversation. I I really
0: enjoyed it. Yeah, likewise. I think the session's been really uplifting. Um, We're grateful for your leadership here at Scholars of Finance, um, helping us determine our path forward to stewarding the world's capital to serve the greater good. As an organization, um, me, our leadership team, all of our students across the organization, um. Look forward to having you back soon and hopefully to having more of these conversations. Absolutely. Amazing. Um, well, thank you so much, JC. Again, appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.